preparing uh, for this sermon, uh, every once in a while I write down notes in my phone, whether I'm reading my Bible or uh, just meditating on Scripture. I'll mark down, I got a little app on my phone, and I put in that note app, sermon ideas. And it may just be a thought that comes, uh, maybe nothing. And this thought that we're going to talk about today is something that I think I wrote down in my phone maybe three years ago, something something like that. And I just it's just been kept coming on my mind over and over and over again. Little did I know I was going to be here today. Um, thankfully, I didn't have plans to be out of town or anything because of vacation. And so it worked out just fine to be able to do it. I'm happy to be able to uh, preach this to you. The thought came from 1 Samuel chapter 18. Now, you don't have to turn there in your Bibles because that's not even where we're going. You can go there if you want to, but this is just the thought that came uh, to the message that we're going to look at today, and so I don't want to give you the text and give away what I'm going to tell you here, not just yet, and so 1 Samuel chapter 18 is when David is ministering under Saul. He's already killed the giant, already killed the lion and the bear, and he is now serving underneath Saul. And Saul knows what's going on. He sees that David's fame is becoming more popular and more popular. And he's not too happy about it because his position is becoming threatened by this young man, David. Saul, like any king, would want his sons to be the successor, but that was not God's plan. We know Samuel went and anointed David, and David was the chosen one to be king. And As David became more famous and became more popular, Saul did everything he could to sabotage God's plan. Everything he possibly could. Tried to kill David. We know that in in, uh, 1 Samuel 18 that Saul was just extremely jealous. We know the women, when he came back, were were saying, Saul slain his thousand and David is ten thousand. Saul didn't like that too much. Saul sent him on a mission. He says, I'll give you my daughter here to, be, to, to marry you, but first you have to go kill 100 Philistines. What did David do? He went down there and killed 200. <laughs> what a guy. I mean, man, what a stud. Comes back. I mean, Saul thought he was gonna, the guy was just, that David was going to die in battle, and that was going to be the end of it. No. David was unstoppable. He was untouchable. God had a plan for his life, and that plan was going to be fulfilled no matter how much Saul tried to stop him. I mean, he was unstoppable. Then he goes and he tries to kill David, and his wife, you know, snuck him out, and they didn't catch him. Saul throws a javelin at David, and he moves out of the way. Throughout the passage, you see that it says that the Lord was with David, and that David behaved himself wisely. And time after time after time, even got to the place where Saul was chasing him around the countryside through the wilderness, trying to kill him. David even sneaks up to Saul and cuts off a piece of his garment, goes to the other side, holds it up to say, look, I'm not trying to even kill you. This is all in God's timing. But he was unstoppable. And I thought, how? How is that possible? Everything that Saul threw at him, he succeeded. And Saul died, 
all of Saul's sons died, and David became king. What an amazing thing for a child of God to be untouchable. While I was thinking about that story, I thought about Joseph. Same exact thing. His brothers were jealous of that he was the favorite. And parents, we have favorites, don't we? We do. May not be truthful about it. I do love them all. Am I going to tell you my favorite? I have favorites at different times. That's what I should say. They're all my favorite at one time or another. Yeah. Someone said to me, I think Bob Maxwell, he said to me, oh, you just came back to church, right? Because you're tired of your kids and you need a break to put them in the nursery, right? I said, yeah, that's, that's about what it is. Joseph, he was the favorite though. His brothers, they were jealous. They sold him into slavery. They wanted to kill him, but that wasn't part of God's plan. So they sold him into slavery. He goes down and to his knowledge, he's probably going to be working as a slave the rest of his life. God gave him favor among the people that was there. He got promoted to number one in command over Potiphar's house, and things seemed to be looking good for him until Potiphar's wife tried to make a move on him and got denied and then lied that Joseph was the one who actually did it, and Joseph finds himself in prison. So People have been jealous, sold him into slavery. Now he's been lied about, falsely accused. He finds himself in prison. And imagine being in Joseph's predicament. We know the end of the story, don't we? Joseph did not know the end of the story. Maybe he was gleaning on uh, the dream that God had given him from years past. But imagine if we were in his shoes. We don't know how it's going to work out probably thought that he was going to rot in prison the rest of his life. But God had a plan. He even had a friend, someone he trusted, one of his companions there in prison that was supposed to go and speak highly of him. Forgot about him. (laughs) Wow. But you know what? Joseph was unstoppable. And there was nothing that could be thrown at him that was going to keep him from his purpose and God's purpose for his life. And I think about us as believers and how that we have a plan and often it, often situations and circumstances for us seem like there's no hope, that it's all gone, that we're going to be defeated, we're going to be beat down, knocked down. And that may seem like it for a moment, but we must keep trusting God that he's going to fulfill his purpose in our life. And so I began to think about these two individuals, and the Bible is full of people just like David, just like, uh, just like David, just like Joseph. We could go look at Paul. We could look at many other people, but these are just the two that I wanted to mention to you this morning that have been on my mind. What made them different? What made them succeed? Well, to do that, I think we ought to go to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 is where we're going to be spending the majority of the time This morning, I would venture to guess that most people, under the sound of my voice, probably have some, if not this entire chapter, memorized. It is one of the most popular psalms in the book, maybe besides Psalm 100. Psalm 1, we're going to read it all, but we're really going to concentrate on the first three verses. It says here, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, 
nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he, he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Their success was based off of truths that we find in Scripture here. They were blessed and they prospered. Those are the two main words that I pick out when I read uh, through this passage. Blessed in the first verse and in the third verse, prosper. And David and Joseph were both of those things. And how did they do it? Well, let's dive into the passage here. The outline that I have here. I cannot remember for the life of me where it came from. I don't know if I came up with it. I don't know if I wrote it down from somewhere else, somebody else that was preaching. I've had this Bible for eight years or so, and I write down, I should have wrote if it was me or if it was somebody else, I don't know. Three simple points, but it's mine this morning. Regardless of where it came from, it's mine today. I've preached this sermon with this outline many different times, but the meat and the structure of it is is all new and redone. I've preached this in chapel, high school chapel, numbers of years ago, re-preached it about a year ago. Same thing for the younger kids' chapel. I preached this in a youth group as well. And these are valuable truths that I think will help us in life and help us be blessed of God, have favor from God, and also to prosper just like David and just like Joseph had. So the first thing that I see here. If we're going to be blessed of God, there's some things in verse number one that we must avoid. Some things in the first verse we must avoid. It says, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And there's a progression. There is a progression that happens here. It starts off casual, but then it gets more serious. The, the warning here is that it starts off uh, kind of innocent but he becomes ingrained and the philosophy becomes ingrained in the individual. We're to avoid ungodly philosophy. Walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. I looked up the word ungodly here and eight times in the Old Testament, the word ungodly there is translated ungodly. We're talking about from the Hebrew. Now, 249 times it's translated wicked, wicked which is the majority, and there's a handful of other times where it's used guilty or wrong. And so th those are the ideas that we come across when we read this word here, to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, or the wicked, or the guilty, or the people who are wrong. We are not to do that. And each time, it does not, the verse, by the way, does not say, blessed is the man who walks in good counsel. Blessed is the man who, who hangs around with good people. Blessed is the man who who uh, does what is right, it's negative. It's negative because you can still take counsel from good people, but also take it from bad. And so it's purposeful here that, that each one of these things is written in a negative light. The ungodly man, it gives us the impression of somebody who is unconcerned 
with spiritual things or the things of God whatsoever. Someone who is downright wicked. And we often think the word wicked, isn't that a strong word? It is a strong word. It it can be an offensive word. If I was to call somebody wicked, generally they would take that to an offense. And Christianity today, we often dumb down what the Bible has called wicked. We look and we think about the people who live on our street and our neighborhoods and our friends and the coworkers that we have and maybe relatives. And we, in our minds, and I fall into this trap too, we would never call some of those people wicked. But yet the Bible calls them wicked, calls them ungodly. We're referring to the people who are unsaved, unconcerned with the things of God. Wicked, let's call it what the Bible calls it. The nice lady who lives across the street. And I'm not talking about you, Audrey Buckley. She lives on my street. Not talking about you. Our nice neighbors and our nice friends, you say, oh, it's not talking about those. Those are the wicked folks. Those are the unsaved folks. People are unconcerned with spiritual things. Yes, they are just regular people, but they're regular, wicked, unsaved, unregenerate people who are in need of a savior. We get our definition from these things from the scriptures. A wicked person is someone who's just dead in their sin, someone who's guilty, rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ as their savior. And they've chosen sin over the savior, and ultimately that's the definition of what wicked is. So we know what we know what ungodly is, but what about walking? Walketh in the way of sinners. It's talking about heeding, taking advice, going forth, proceeding. And so, blessed is the man who walks not. Walks not is taking advice. It's referring to taking advice, listening to, going along with. Simply put, the person who is blessed of God, the man or woman who is going to be blessed of God, is going to avoid taking counsel from ungodly, wicked, unregenerate people. All right? That's pretty common. That's what it says. We say that's good, but we don't always line up with it. We got parents. I just talk about Christians, Christians in general. We've got parents, or soon to be parents, who are reading books on raising children from heathen people. Why in the world would a child of God ever do that? Do not take counsel from the ungodly, from the wicked. Don't do it. We've got parents taking teens to wicked, unsaved psychiatrists to fix their problems. How terrible that a child of God would ever do something like that. Seek spiritual counsel from pastors, from good Christian people. Our church is filled with them. God forbid that we take them to the heathen to get help for those type of spiritual issues that are called. That's like Saul going to see the witch of Endor. You remember that? It's like a modern-day psychiatrist. Unsaved, heathen psychiatrist. We got people who are patterning their business and their business life off of unsaved philosophies. How shameful when there's good Christian businessmen and businesswomen that we can model our affairs after. I was looking up some, and I came across R.G. Letourneau. Maybe you guys maybe know him. He was involved in earth-moving equipment many years ago. Had a very successful business. We're talking about machines like 
um, caterpillar trucks, I mean, huge, massive dump trucks, 13-foot tires, the big things, big, big equipment. Christian man, he determined that he was going to live off 10% and give 90% to God. That's the type of guy I want to model my business after. And he was unbelievably successful, the number one in his field, over 5,000 patents. Wow. The man who founded Chick-fil-A. Every time I go by there, it's packed out. It was founded on Christian values and Christian principles. Those are the people I'm searching for. In our church, we've got countless men who have been successful spiritually and also successful monetarily in business. Those are the people I would want to rub shoulders with when I'm thinking about going into business. Amen? Not the wicked, not the people who don't care anything about God, the people who are trying to get everything they possibly can for themselves and leave nothing for anybody else. Come on. Our counsel should come from believers, people who love God, the godly. Not only are we to resist counsel from the wicked, but we're also to avoid friendship with sinners. You say, well, that sounds kind of contradictory to what the Bible says. Well, nor standeth in the way of sinners. Let's look at it. The blessed man is careful in selecting who his friends are. We should surround ourselves with spiritual, blood-washed, redeemed people who love God. And Christians are often, especially new ones, are slow, are extremely slow of withdrawing themselves from the unsaved people. And they often use this excuse, but Jesus was a friend of sinners. Who called him a friend of sinners? Who called him that? The Pharisees. Some of you are like, did I get it right? Yes, the Pharisees. Pharisees, they were the ones. Jesus never said, hey, I'm, I'm the friend of sinners. He was given that name by the Pharisees who were trying to put a jab at him. Yes, Jesus did associate with sinners, and he did rub shoulders with them because he was here to seek and to save that which was lost. I'm glad that Jesus rubbed shoulders with me, got to know me when I was lost in my sin. Same thing that Jesus was doing when he went to folks like Zacchaeus. But he was not, his closest companions were not those wicked heathen people. His closest friends were those 12 disciples, which he loved for, cared for. He even called them his friends. He didn't call those other people. You say, well, the Pharisees did. They also called him a wine-bibber, that he was a drunk. They also called Jesus that he was a glutton. I mean, he had no self-control. Come on. Don't cling to those type of things. Well, Jesus was a friend of sinner. I'm just going to make my friends the unsaved people. That's not what Jesus did. Surround yourself with good, godly people. And I'm not saying don't go around and be friendly to folks. I'm saying go to your pickleball groups and be a good testimony for Christ. Get out there on the golf course and be a good testimony for Christ. Don't swear, don't cuss, don't act ugly like they do. Make sure you beat them too, by the way. And be a good testimony for the Lord. We go, go, to your, go to your country clubs and your community events and have a good time. But the ungodly, unsafe folks should not be the first person you're picking up the phone to call to hang out with every Saturday night. Surround yourself with good, godly Christian people like the folks here in our church. 
And there's many folks in, uh, in our communities that are good Christian folks who love God. Get around those people and associate with those people. Parents with troubled teens, occasionally they come by and they ask my counsel. I worked for four and a half years uh, in the youth ministry here, of course, still work in the school. And they would come by and they would say, you know, whether or not it was for the school or for the church, uh, these, these folks would come by and they would say, man, my child, I, I have a troubled teen. They're going down the wrong path. And I would begin, first thing you do when you counsel, you just ask questions. You're not there to really give advice. You're just sitting there to ask questions. You know, every single time that I can possibly remember a teen, a teen that was troubled and rebellious to the things of God, to mom and dad, every single time I would say, what kind of friends do they have? Every single time, the people who that child's closest friends were people who were not living for God. You are who you hang around. My, our mothers, probably you guys heard this statement just as much as I did. Birds of a feather flock together. Thanks, Mom. Appreciate it. I mean, you are who you hang around. One man said a quote like this. I've shared this in Sunday school before. He says, if you hang around five confident people, you're going to end up being the sixth. He says, if you hang around five millionaires, you're going to be the sixth some truth to that. But he says, if you hang around five idiots, you're going to be the sixth idiot. Your friends are either going to make you or they are going to break you. And if you're going to be blessed of God, have favor from God, you're going to need to surround yourself with good godly friends like David had with Jonathan. Their souls were knit together. They had a companionship for living the right way for God. Jonathan was such a friend that he was giving up his position for his friend because it was God's will. Those are the type of self-sacrificing people that I want to be my closest, closest confidants. Avoid making ungodly people your closest friends. And let me say this, you shouldn't have to avoid and remove them from being your friends. They're going to do that for you if you're living for God. You got that? They are going to remove you. How many time after time does, do folks come? They get saved. They start living their lives for the Lord, start making progress. They start getting in the book. They start coming faithful to church. I mean, they almost start talking Christian. You know what I'm talking about? Saying phrases like born again, you know, blood wash, those type of things. And time and time again, they say, my family doesn't want anything to do with me. What's going on? And they feel this battle that's going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every one of us in here has experienced that to some extent. I'm thankful that the majority of my family saved, and I don't have some of that, but there is some of my family who I've struggled with. Some of my friends that I used to hang out with, I don't want to hang around them, and they don't want to hang around me. We're not just on different pages. We're in like a different book. And if you're living your life a way that's pleasing to the Lord, they are going to want nothing to do with you. So if you can just slip in there and hang out with that same crowd you used to hang around with 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, something's wrong. Something is dead wrong. There ought to be a change in our life, and we ought to avoid those ungodly people from being our closest friends. Thirdly, a thing to avoid is adopting their lifestyle. It says, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, the last part of verse number one. Scornful is talking about mockers. 
People who have a disdain for righteousness, the seat is referring to like a club or a gathering or a group of people. The seat of the scornful, the gathering of these mockers and these people who do not appreciate nor love righteousness. And it's a progression. If you casually begin taking advice from the unsaved soon enough, you'll find that those become your closest companions and your closest friends. Soon enough, you will adopt their philosophies. And you will be sitting in the exact same spot they are sitting in. And not only will it overtake your life, but you're going to be start to influence other people just like they influenced you some time ago. It's a horrible progression. And if you want God to hold back his blessing from you, go ahead and do those, do those things. Adopt their philosophy. You will become what you've once despised. I can think of countless people. We could go around the room. And we could think of countless people who sat in the same chairs that we are sitting in today that used to be on fire for God, used to have a zeal for God, used to be on the right way. But what did they do? They started listening to wrong philosophy, whether it's from friends, whether it's from media, whether it's from TV, social media, you name it. Something happened. And they began the downward process. And they are no longer here. And they're sitting in the seat of the scornful, in the seat of the mockers. The first verse, as I mentioned, it has a lot of negatives. Don't do this, don't do that. But when we come to the second verse here, we notice something different. It's more positive. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He has a love for the word of God. Delight means joy. It means happiness. Something that lifts our spirits, that we enjoy. There's things that I delight in. We could, again, I could ask many of you, hey, what do you guys delight in? I've got hobbies that I enjoy and things that I like doing. I delight in my children, most of them, most of the time. I delight in them. I've had a fabulous time being with them this week, being with my mom and dad um, on vacation. It's been fabulous. And I delight in them. It brings me joy. It brings me happiness. And that's what the word of God ought to do. It says, is in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is referring to God's word, referring back to the law of Moses that was given to the Israelites, which was the portion of scripture that they had, God's word. And a person who is blessed of God is not going to avoid certain people, but is going to find happiness and is going to find joy in the things of God and in the word of God. What's interesting is finding delight in the word of God, which me personally, I used to disdain before I was a child of God. I find joy now in the things that I used to hate and that I couldn't stand. I couldn't stand when my, my parents, my mom and dad, would force me to come to church. I couldn't stand when they'd force me not only to come to church, but they'd make me go to those awful youth rallies on Saturdays. And we'd go, hey, I find joy and happiness and delight in those things now because I'm not the same I was. I'm a new person. And I find joy in the things of God. And if you don't find joy and delight in the things of God, either you're just severely backslidden or, or it's possible you're not really saved. And if you've got any doubt about that, you need to make sure. The Bible says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just a taste. Taste and see. Well, I think about that, I... This thought about delighting, one of the things that I thought about was my wife, Heather. I don't know if she's in here or not, but I delight 
in spending time with my wife, Heather, while we were dating. Actually, before we were dating, we worked summer camp at a Christian camp in 2013, I think it was. And I didn't know her. She didn't know me. And we were in a group of about eight counselors and got around her. First week or so, I delighted being in her presence. And, and she delighted being in mine. I mean, what do you expect? <laughs> she delighted in my presence and I delighted in her presence. Soon. What? Oh, because we liked each other and had a fascination. It became more and more and more and more and more and we got to see each other more and more and it developed. Was it all it was ever going to be right there at the start of it? No, there was some cultivation that must take place. We got to get to know each other. And, it, and our love and our affection for each other grew and grew and grew into what it is today. And is it the same, the same exact thing it was right at the beginning? No, not necessarily. Not, neither is our salvation. It's not the exact same feeling or that thrill or that excitement. It becomes more real to us, but it becomes more sweeter with time as we delight in the things of God. So we must start and you say, well, man, I just really don't kind of like the word of God. Get in it. Then get in it again. Then get in it some more and some more and some more. And soon enough, I guarantee you, you're going to delight in it. Not only are we supposed to delight in the word of God, but it says to meditate. In his law doth he meditate day and night. This is not a forced meditation. It's not something that has to be predetermined, not like the, bunk, the Buddhists or the monks who sit and say, this is my time for meditation, and they sit there and ponder and try to have enlightenment or whatever they do. That's not what we do as children of God. And if you think meditating on the Word of God is just sitting down with your Bible in front of your, with your morning cup of coffee and reading it, and that's your meditation... That's just a fraction of it. That's actually the smallest part of it. The meditation that it's referring to here is that the word of God and the things of God are constantly and always on our minds, continually. I don't know about you, but I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything without thinking about how good God is. What is that? That's a meditation on the things of God from the knowledge that I have from the word of God. And it develops from knowing God's word. And I begin to meditate on it. When I look out at a sunset, I don't just think, oh, that's beautiful. I think, wow, God is amazing. What is that? That's a meditation. When I'm driving in the car and I see millions of people driving by me with all different types of personalities and, and different looks and appearances, and I just think, wow, that's amazing. I mean, God is magnificent that he can do something. Meditating on the things of God. We've got, young, we've got men that come up here and they memorize scripture. Why are they doing that? Because they're meditating on the things of God throughout the week as they're trying to memorize it. It becomes stuck in their mind. And when situations happen, God brings those verses up inside their mind. And it's that process of meditation. Not I'm reading my Bible in the morning and I'm reading my Bible at night and that satisfies it. No, this is the individual he's talking about here that's prospering and going to be blessed is the person who is constantly thinking about God's word. So many of us, we have dead religion. We don't delight in the things of God. We don't really have a meditation for God's word. We crack open our Bibles because it's our duty. 
We walk through the back of the doors of the church because it's our duty. There's no zeal. All there is is just some commitment. We show up and we do our ministries because we're expected to do so. That's dead religion. I don't want any part of that. I want it to be real. I want it to be something that's substantial. We must love God's word. We must avoid certain things. And this is the best part. If we do those things, we can expect something. It's kind of like a formula. We can expect, verse 3, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Again, I like that word prosper. Whatever you do shall prosper. Now, this is not health and wealth gospel. This is not saying that, hey, if you just avoid bad friends and bad influences and you just love God's word, uh, that everything in your life is just going to be perfect. That's not, that's not what it's getting across here. Doesn't mean you're going to get rich. Your business is just going to be overly successful. You're going to have, you know, a dream marriage, a Hallmark style marriage. Terrible. You're not going to finally get that boat that you've always wanted or the house you dreamed of. I'm going to prosper. Not necessarily. That's not really what it's referring to. We come to this word prosper with eyes of faith, as David and Joseph must have had as they look at their life and see no good outcome. And everything's going wrong, but God allowed them to prosper. And they did not know how it was all going to take place, what was going to happen, but God fulfilled it. The example here is of a tree. A tree is a sign of strength, life, majesty. It's planted. Now, this tree is not a wild tree that it's mentioning here. It's one that was purposefully planted for something. Matthew 15, 13, Jesus says, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. I can tell you, if you are a child of God, God has a purpose for you for something. And he's planted you in a specific place for a specific reason. I like here that it says it's planted by the rivers of water. Now, one commentator, I was, I was reading through this, mentioned rivers, which I'd never seen that before. Rivers, plural. He said more than one river. So if one river was to dry up, there was still a source of life. Amazing. little insight that I never had thought about before. And this tree being by the river, its roots are going to go deep into the earth. And the water that comes by has nutrients in it, which also uh, uh, moisturizes the soil there and allows those nutrients to get into the roots. And it prospers and it grows. Its source of life comes from the water. Versus a tree that's just out in the middle of the desert somewhere. You say, well, that's common sense. Think about it this way. Water, of course, Jesus, John chapter 4, talking about the water of life, living water. Jesus is our living water. A tree that is planted by a river, no one's going to ever go up to that tree and say, I wonder why that tree is doing so well. What are they going to say? They're going to say they're doing so well because it's got such a source of life coming to it. And in our lives as Christians, when we get knocked down, when we get beat up, when we look like there's no hope whatsoever, and we're still successful, we're still doing well. How do I know that? Well, it says, its, it's leaves also shall not wither. It's successful all the time, even in the bad times. Even in a prison, Joseph found favor. Even as a slave, Joseph found favor. Even as a nobody, David was rising up. Why? The only credit that we could possibly give to that was God Almighty. And us as children of God, when we begin to succeed, 
and do well, even though we are beat down and you lose your job. Your financial state looks terrible. Your car breaks down. Your wife leaves you. A Christian can still do well and their leaf isn't going to wither. Why? Because of its source of nutrients and its source of strength, which comes from Christ and Christ alone. And we can be successful and prosper just like David did. And it brings forth fruit in its season. Notice it doesn't bring forth fruit all the time. I would love to produce fruit all the time. But there's seasons for it. There's seasons to bring forth fruit. It's not when we want it. It is in season. Joseph in slavery and in prison thought there's no hope. How is this going to happen? David, sabotaged by Saul, running for his life. You know the rest that we've already mentioned. But he was going to produce fruit in his season. That's the type of life I want. I want to be blessed. I want to prosper. So what can I tell you today if you want those things? Avoid. Avoid the counsel of the ungodly. Avoid associating, heavily associating yourselves with sinners and allowing them to be your closest friends because they are going to pollute you. Avoid adopting those vain philosophies and those humanistic, materialistic philosophies that the world has to offer and becoming a scoffer to the things of God. Get deep into God's word. If you love God's word and delight in it, you're going to obey it. It's going to be constantly on your mind. You are going to be meditating on it. The result of that is a life of prosperity. Prosperity through the eyes of faith. I hope you want that. That's what I want. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the few moments you've had uh, given us to look into your word. We thank you just for another day that we have uh, to serve you. Um, we think about how we really came to this uh, message here today. A week or so ago, Pastor Bill already had things that he was planning on preaching. Talked with him yesterday. He said, man, I had, I had stuff lined up to preach. But you knew even back then that this was the message that was going to be given this morning. And we're thankful uh, to hear it. I, I ask that the words that were spoken would go deep into the hearts and minds of individuals here. May we grasp, the, grasp this simple but yet profound, profound topic of receiving blessing from God and prospering. We've got folks in here that are going through trials and hardships right now. May they reach out to that source of life, the river of water that runs by, so their leaf won't wither. Allow them to bring forth fruit in their season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you and God bless.